After the premiere of Aida in 1871, the first production of The Requiem in 1874, and the revisions of both Simone Boccanegra and Don Carlo, Giuseppe Verdi was ready to retire to his little farm in Busetto, just outside of Milan, only occasionally attending to revivals of his operas in some of the most important houses in Europe. At the age of 74, Verdi was certainly due an opportunity for rest and quiet, things that were completely unknown in Italian opera production. His friends and colleagues conspired together to tempt him back to his composition desk, and in 1887, the world looked forward to the first Verdi opera to premiere in nearly 16 years. What really tempted the composer was the subject, from an English source that was successful for the composer once in the past and was to be again in the future. That source was William Shakespeare, and the subject was the Bard's brilliant play, Othello, written in 1604. The opera, of course, was Otello, a work of consummate excitement with a dynamic charge that spurs the audience forward from note to note, phrase to phrase, scene to scene, with breathless momentum. It's an opera that begins with a raging storm off the coast of Cyprus and hurtles us forward without rest to its inexorable conclusion. If you don't know this opera, you're about to discover one of the finest works ever written for the stage. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. The drama surrounding the creation of Otello is almost as riveting as the drama in the opera itself. The characters are also nearly as interesting as Otello, Iago, and Desdemona. They are Giulio Ricordi, the then head of the Milan publishing house that had been working with the composer throughout his entire career. Franco Faccio, the composer and conductor who had led the La Scala premiere of Aida and was later the conductor under whose baton Otello first appeared. And finally, Giuseppina Streponi, one-time soprano and now the composer's wife and partner for some 40 years. The year was 1879. Verdi and his wife traveled to Milan from the ranch in Busetto in order for him to conduct a performance of the Requiem for the benefit of victims in a recent series of devastating floods in northern Italy. The couple always stayed at the Grand Hotel in Milan and while they were there, they invited Faccio and Ricordi to join them for one evening at dinner. The evening's conversation centered on operatic subjects, and one in particular was raised by Ricordi, knowing Verdi's fondness for the works of Shakespeare, Othello. According to the publisher, Verdi's eyes fixed on him at the mention of the subject. He was immediately suspicious that he was being set up, and indeed, he was. With Giuseppina lending support from the sidelines, Faccio and Ricordi made a strong case for Othello as a worthy subject, and were even prepared to suggest a librettist, an Italian poet who had provided Faccio himself with a libretto for an opera based on Hamlet. That poet, who had also had some success as a composer of his own opera, Mephistofele, was Arrigo Boito. That evening in 1879 over dinner, Verdi tentatively agreed to meet Boito and discuss the possibility of working together. 
Though Boito and Verdi spoke and corresponded a great deal about the possible Otello project, still nothing came of it. Little by little, however, Boito fed the composer bits of the libretto, and finally, in 1884, the composer actually began writing the piece. It wasn't until 1887, three years later, that the opera finally premiered at La Scala. It was a universally acclaimed event that was anticipated by the entire musical world. return to that fateful dinner conversation at the Grand Hotel in Milan in 1879. One subject cast a pall over the entire discussion concerning the possibility of Otello as an opera, and that was the fact that there already existed a glorious operatic setting of the play by another earlier Italian composer, Gioacchino Rossini. Although the libretto for Rossini's Otello was flawed, the work made its mark because of that third act, which Meyerbeer called godlike, with a reputation so firmly established that a thousand errors could not shake it, to quote him exactly. This was certainly daunting to Verdi, but not so much to the younger Boito, who was itching to come up with an operatic equivalent of the play that would be true to the original, but surpass it, if possible, in emotional power. He did so, and the libretto's unusual rhythms and cadences allowed Verdi to write a work that was able to break many traditions of Italian opera. But none of this hard work would be worth anything if Verdi, without Giulio Ricordi's help, were not able to line up a cast that would be able to do the work justice. A favorite among Verdi's circle for Desdemona was the soprano Gemma Bellincioni, one of the reigning prima donnas of the day, but the composer would have none of her. Verdi finally settled on Romilda Pantaglioni, a decision made easier because of her current love affair with Franco Faccio, one of the dinner guests in Milan, and eventually the conductor of the first performance of Otello. The other two principal roles were easier to cast. The greatest tenore di forza of the time was Francesco Tamagno, and the role of Otello was such that only a voice of great weight and dramatic power could communicate it. Victor Morel was the only choice for the pivotal role of the evil Iago. Born a Frenchman, Morel made his career in Italy as an esteemed interpreter of all the great Italian baritone roles. He is said to have been a fantastic actor, even impressing the hypercritical George Bernard Shaw who stated that anyone who wanted to understand great operatic acting should study Morel. Verdi passed the actual conducting duties over to Franco Faccio, and on February 5, 1887, Milan was the center of international musical attention. Its success was a given, considering the amount of time that had expired since Verdi's last operatic premiere, and the constant press accounts during the writing of the opera that piqued the public's interest. Remarkably, Verdi had one more masterpiece under his belt, Falstaff. But that's a story for another time.
The story of Otello places us in Cyprus during the 15th century. The Moorish general Otello has arrived victorious over the Turks, despite struggling with a dangerous storm at sea. His ensign, Iago, having been passed over for promotion in favor of the young lieutenant, Cassio, plots to destroy Otello by encouraging Rodrigo's lust for Otello's wife, Desdemona, then by instigating a duel between Cassio and Rodrigo. The noise of the struggle awakens Otello and his wife, and he angrily dismisses Cassio from his service, much to Iago's delight. Otello and Desdemona sing a ravishing love duet, but we know their love is to be short-lived. Iago believes in a cruel god. He continues his plot by urging Cassio to seek Otello's forgiveness through Desdemona. He knows Otello's great weakness is his jealousy, and he points out Cassio and Desdemona sharing an intimate conversation. As Desdemona pleads on Cassio's behalf, Otello becomes angry. But this is nothing to his reaction to seeing his wife's handkerchief in Iago's possession. Iago tells him he's found it in Cassio's room, and based on this false information, Otello swears vengeance. Based on Iago's constant feeding of the serpent of jealousy, Otello determines to kill his wife for her supposed infidelity. Furthering his injury, he is recalled to Venice and replaced by none other than Cassio. Before gathered nobles and citizens of Cyprus, he denounces his wife publicly and then falls victim to an epileptic fit. Iago gloats over Otello's fallen body. In the end, we see a devastated Desdemona preparing for bed by singing an old folk song and saying her prayers. As she sleeps, Otello enters the room, confronts her for her adultery, and then strangles her in his rage. Iago's wife, Emilia, Desdemona's maid, reveals the thread of the plot, and Otello, realizing his tragic mistake, commits suicide by stabbing himself. The opera ends as he reaches up to the lifeless body of his wife to give her one last kiss. I've invited Dr. Aaron Branch, Associate Professor of English Literature at the University of San Diego, to join me for a bit of a conversation about Verdi and Shakespeare and Othello. Aaron, it's good to have you with us. Thank you, Nick. I'm glad to be here. Um, first of all, place Othello, the Shakespeare play, in his output. I mean, is, is it still considered by scholars one of the great Shakespeare plays like Hamlet or Macbeth? Oh, definitely. I mean, um, Shakespeare wrote it when he was about 40 years old. I think it definitely is one of the great plays. Uh, I, I was interested to find out how many times it was performed in Italy, in fact, uh, in the decades preceding uh, the opera Otello. Mm -hmm. I think another indicator is how many times, how frequently it's performed today, and also how many other stories take off from it. Uh, there was something on BBC just this last January called Othello about a black police chief in London being elevated to that office. And then there's an American film about high schoolers oh, called Oh, right. 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 And, and uh, just 
there's a kind of, of economy about that story. I mean, it's a domestic tragedy. There's a kind of spareness, a kind of economy. It, there's, it's, it's very limited in place and in time. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, there's a kind of flamboyance of characterization within it. Uh, George Bernard Shaw remarked that Othello is a play written by Shakespeare in the style of Italian opera. <laughs> You've got to love that quote. That's wonderful. <laughs> oh, I do. I do. <laughs> um, so Verdi would have been um, familiar, and Boito as well, the librettist, yes. would perhaps have attended actual performances mm -hmm. of Othello. Uh, in, Italy in Italy during this time. It would yes, have, yes. have been a stretch of the yes. imagination that they would be very familiar with this play. Well, Boito then just doesn't take the original Shakespeare text, translate it in Italian, and then turn it over to, to, uh, to Verdi to set to music. I mean, no operatic composer approaches a play like that word mm -hmm. for word. Mm -hmm. What did Boito have to do with the original play in order to make it into an operatic libretto? Well, as I was characterizing it as having a spareness and an economy, and Boito went even further in that regard. He, he reduced some of the, the roles of some of the secondary characters. He re rearranged some of the scenes. But the biggest thing, and what, what one notices immediately if you're coming from Shakespeare's Othello, when that opera opens, we are not in Venice, which is where the whole first act of Shakespeare's play uh, takes place. No, we are on the coast of Cyprus in the midst of this huge storm. It's act two from the play, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And in act one of the play, we, we are enmeshed in the world of Venice. It's a world of order, of reason, of law, of logic, and how it ends up serving as an intense contrast then when act two of the play opens to the world of Cyprus. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's not that conflict doesn't occur in Venice, it does. There's quite a bit, There's particularly a bit. between Othello and Desdemona's father. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And the, the, the hurt, the pain that Desdemona's father feels that his daughter has deceived him. And yet, that conflict is, if not resolved, at least contained mm -hmm. by the, the, the kinds of order that Venice represents. Could we approach Desdemona just for a moment? Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that that first act of the, of the play mm -hmm. gives us a much richer picture of Desdemona than we get in the opera of Desdemona. And of course, Verdi and Boito wanted this character to be very pure and very innocent. But from the play, from Shakespeare, from the original, she isn't quite is she? I mean, she's a, she seems to me a much more complex character in the Shakespeare. Oh, I, I agree, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, she is absolutely pure in the play, too. However, as you say, she is much more complex. Yeah. When we meet her, she has been summoned into the court of the Doge to answer these accusations of her father, who, when she walks in the room, he asks her, to whom in this room do you owe greatest obedience? And her response, my noble father, I do perceive here a divided duty. Mm -hmm. And then she goes on to say, just as my mother left her parents and gave her obedience and duty to you, so have I done to my husband, Othello, who is over there. And her father has no response to that. But there's a smartness, a logic, a um, an intellectual quality about Des Desdemona that we don't have in the opera. I agree. I agree. The language, 
What's interesting is I, I, I think obviously Boito must have known English well enough mm -hmm. to be able to translate into Italian some of the marvelous imagery, some of the poetry of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Some of it is retained, some is not. Do you think that Boito did justice to the mm -hmm. play for Verdi? I think he did justice to it, yes. I think he also transformed it uh, completely. There is in the play, and not only in Desdemona and Othello, but particularly in Iago, a kind of verbal complexity. Mm -hmm. The imagery, the resonances, the echoes uh, that are there on a verbal level did not all come through in the opera, I mean, for all kinds of reasons. Um, and I miss that, mm -hmm. in a sense. However, I think the sort of depth of feeling, the depth of thought that is, it, that is communicated through that verbal level in the play is not only carried by, but in a sense reinvented by the music in the so opera. the emotional core of the play is, is kept intact, which is the most important thing. Absolutely. That's great. Absolutely. Aaron, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Nick. I enjoyed it. Otello is certainly one of Verdi's most complex scores, and it's impossible to capture its essence in just the few minutes that we have together. But perhaps I can give you an idea of what makes this opera work musically by comparing it to other earlier works of the composer. You could describe Verdi's entire operatic output by saying that it was a constant search for dramatic truth while trying to, number one, respect the traditions of Italian opera, as Verdi had them from older composers like Rossini and Donizetti, and two, trying his best to subvert those traditions so that the essence of the drama in opera would seem more realistic. Verdi's earliest operas like Nabucco, Ernani, and I Lombardi pretty much followed the examples of these older bel canto composers. There are structured numbers, pieces of vocal music like arias and ensembles, which would be just as comfortable on the, on the concert stage, lifted out of context and sung outside of the theatrical piece. A perfect example of this is the chorus Va Pensiero from Nabucco. It was difficult from the standpoint of the audience because the audience demanded pieces like this that they could go home humming, and with a definitive cadence at their ends so that they could applaud the artists. From the standpoint of the singers, they wanted, needed, and demanded the applause. But slowly, throughout the composer's career, these kinds of numbers or set pieces began to disappear in favor of arias and ensembles that were ongoing, through composed, and so integral to the drama that it would seem almost impossible to lift them out of context and appreciate them on their own. Now, Verdi didn't do this to frustrate his listeners or to anger his singers. He did this because it made opera more natural and thus more like traditional theater. At the end of Act One, Otello and Desdemona have a love duet. You would expect a typical, lyrical, passionate duet between these two in which they would take turns singing the same beautiful melodies to each other. 
Well, in reality, this duet couldn't be further away from that old, overdone model. We first hear a beautiful introduction from the cello section in the orchestra. Perhaps we expect Otello's first vocal lines to be derived from what we've just heard, but no, it goes in another direction. That's music that sounds more like a hymn than like the ethereal music which introduced the duet by the cello section. When Desdemona enters a few measures later, again we expect a continuous development of what we've just heard, but it's really an entirely new melody. Then again, from Desdemona, a true melody comes to our ear that finally really soars. Does Otello repeat it or sing a variation of the tune? No, he moves on to something completely different. Then we get something, again, completely different from Desdemona. And on and on it goes until finally they get a tune that both of them are able to sing together. But they don't sing it simultaneously. It's one character after another, first Otello. And at the end of their duet, a tune associated with their kiss, the so-called bacho motive, is played by the orchestra with interjections by Otello as he kisses his wife.
This kiss motive recurs again at the very end of the opera, after the death of Desdemona, and just after Otello stabs himself in grief over what he's done. Well, that's not a very traditional love duet, is it? Why? Because for Verdi, it was more important for the music to match the text, and more importantly, the drama, than it was for us to have a beautiful eight-bar tune that we could stick in our heads and hum to ourselves for our own personal pleasure. Remember this all was about Verdi, in fact, about all the other great composers of opera. Over everything else, even beyond their innate musicianship, these were men of the theater. Theater was in their blood. And finally, by the time Verdi wrote Otello and Falstaff, the Italian opera composer was able to break free from the traditions that bound him and create works that were, yes, poetic and lyrical, but as naturally dramatic as a play by, well, Shakespeare. There are some wonderful resources for Otello, particularly recordings. I've only chosen three of them to emphasize with you, but there are plenty others out there that are quite good. We should really start at the beginning, and that is the wonderful performance conducted by Arturo Toscanini, who actually sat second chair cello in the very first performance of Otello. So this is a very authentic performance with the NBC Orchestra. The Otello is the wonderful Ramon Vinay. Another great recording is the one with the Otello sung by John Vickers. This is his early recording conducted by Tullio Serafin. His Desdemona is Leonie Rizinek. The Iago is Tito Gopi. Perhaps the best modern recording of Otello is the one with Placido Domingo. This is the first of three or four recordings of Otello that he's actually prepared. The conductor is James Levine, the Desdemona is the wonderful soprano Renata Scotto, and the Iago, the inimitable Cheryl Milnes. I'd also like to repeat my endorsement of two wonderful books about Verdi's operas. First, The Complete Operas of Verdi by Charles Osborne. This is a rather compact look at Verdi's entire operatic output. And then the more massive three-volume Julian Budden study of the complete operas of Verdi. This is a terrific, terrific book. And if you're really interested in getting into the music a little more deeply, that should be your choice. Out of all these wonderful resources, I'm sure you'll find something to help prepare you for a great performance of Otello. The opera Otello is one of the more intense evenings of theater that you will ever experience. With its partner of Verdi's old age, Falstaff, it marks the end of a grand tradition of operatic style begun by Rossini at the beginning of the 19th century. Under the hands of a great conductor and singers of international stature and experience, it can be an unforgettable, humanly touching event. This is an opera not to be missed. I'm Nick Ravellis. I'll see you at the opera.